In a post-quantum world, the cryptography that we're using today is virtually useless. Everything that you are communicating via your browser today will be readable in the future, and anything you've done today that's recorded will be readable in the future as well. Hello and welcome to Explain It, brought to you by SoftCat, the show for IT professionals by IT professionals that aims to simplify the complex and often overcomplicated bits of enterprise IT without compromising on detail. I'm host Michael Bird, and over the next 30 or so minutes, I'll be challenging our panel of experts to take a different area of the IT ecosystem and, of course, explain it. In this episode, we're going to be talking about quantum computing, what on earth it is and how organizations might be able to take advantage of it in the future and what the future might look like for quantum computing. And with me to help is Craig Leginski, who is SoftCat's Chief Technologist for Data and Emerging Technology. You'll be very aware now that we ask all of our guests to bring along an interesting fact. So your fifth interesting fact, please, Craig. So I think we were having a bit of a, a motorsport conversation before we started, and that spurred my memory to remember that I once had seven times the Mon champion Tom Christensen make me a cup of coffee. Oh, lovely. Why did he make you a cup of coffee? Before I got into IT, I used to work in events, and we were doing a, a motorsport event, and it was absolutely hammering it down with rain outside, and I was doing a bit of marshalling, and uh, Tom was kind enough to bring some coffees out of his hospitality unit for us. And we've also got Martin Myers, who is Fujitsu's CTO for the UK product business. Martin, as you heard, we asked all of our guests to bring an interesting fact. Uh, what was your interesting fact? Uh, when my daughter completed her A-levels, she'd been studying geology, and uh, I thought it'd be a great idea to take her to Stromboli, which is a volcano in the Mediterranean. And we arrived there, and we climbed to the top of the volcano, and we looked down into the burning cauldron of, of, of lava spitting out and, and being quite uh, obnoxious. As a result of which, she's now studying biology wow. at the university, not geography. <laughs> So let's uh, jump into the show. Craig, Martin, uh, what is quantum computing? Quantum computing today is an emerging field. We're not yet fully developed in this area. It's really, really exciting. We'll be able to do some really cool uh, stuff with it, uh, resolve some really complex problems. It's going to be fantastically expensive to get to the point of, of commercial utilisation. But the most important thing is it's not a evolution of the current IT environment that we know today. Uh, it uses some quite complex quantum mechanical phenomena. Okay, so um, can you just quickly explain then some of that quantum mechanical phenomenon? So there's three main phenomena that quantum computing is going to utilise in one form or another, and there's various different types of strategies being adopted. The first of those is, is a principle called uh, quantum entanglement. And this is the ability to link the properties of two particles and then separate them to some great distance while maintaining the linked properties. Affecting the property of one then affects the property of the other, even though you may have separated them by thousands of miles. You might recall that Einstein referred to this as spooky action at a distance, because he was quite dismissive of, of this principle. But it has been shown mathematically to be correct now, and experimentally as well. Where have they experimented with it? It's been done in various uh, research laboratories and in a few commercial organisations as well, uh, to the extent also that the Chinese have recently launched a satellite uh, and demonstrated that you can entangle particles on Earth, move one of them out into space and maintain the coherency between the two. Is that instant? It is instant, Or is yes. that speed of light? No, no, it is instantaneous. So what's the second phenomenon then? So the second one is uh, equally bizarre. It's uh, the principle of quantum superposition. So everybody will be familiar in today's IT environment that we use 
bits which represent a zero or a one. And that's the uh, maths method that's used in, in all computing today. With quantum superposition, the, the, the qubit, essentially the equivalent to the bit in a quantum computer, that will be representing a zero, a one, or any other value in between as well. So you don't directly know what the value of that is until you actually evaluate it at the end of the calculation. In the meantime, it can represent a zero or one or any value in between. <laughs> Wonderfully confusing. And so what's the third point? So the third principle is the principle of quantum tunneling. Uh, and this is another quite strange uh, phenomena. Uh, and this is the uh, property that a subatomic particle uh, may transition from one energy, energy state to a lower energy state, even though it needs to pass through a higher energy state to get there. In a real-world analogy, that would be like a orange sitting in a vase passing through the side of the vase onto the table to get to a lower energy position. Now, theoretically, that's possible, but the probability is extremely low. Okay, so these, um, these three principles don't sound particularly conducive to good computing, especially the quantum superposition about the binary state that can be in a zero or one. Can you just explain a bit about quantum computing, how that works and how that uses all of these quantum phenomena? So, so these are ideas that were first developed in the 1980s, and there were several different researchers and different research teams involved in this across the world. But one chap in particular, a chap called Feynman, uh, he did a lot of the original work in this space, and it was recognised to the extent that he got a Nobel Physics Prize for that. Using those quantum phenomena is extremely difficult to do. And as I alluded to earlier, we use qubits rather than bits and we represent numbers in a way that can be naught, one, or any number in between in parallel across the entire workspace at the same time. Uh, and then what happens at the end of the process, which happens very quickly, is we get a probabilistic answer. So unlike a classical computer which tells you the answer is 3.1415 for pi, the quantum computer will tell you that it's probably 3.1415 with all the other digits filled in with a certain level of certainty. And then it's up to the scientists then to evaluate if that gives you that level of certainty that is required for the particular task in hand. Yeah, so as, as Martin described, the, one of the key factors in, in using particularly quantum superposition for computational purposes is that instead of a bit being binary, being zero or one, a qubit can be a quantum superposition of that zero or one. So that gives you a continuous string of variables between those integers. What that means is that, so in a traditional system, if you take a classical CPU with a million transistors, you add a single transistor, that's one part per million improvement. If you take a five qubit system and add another qubit, you're doubling the computational power of that because you have an exponential function in how you're able to take that continuous string of variables and perform computation on it. So that makes the potential of quantum computers very powerful. So what would you be able to do with a quantum computer that you can't do with my laptop that's sat in front of me? So, so that's a really, uh, really good question because I think a lot of the activity that's going to be in the space of quantum computing isn't going to be directly related to the traditional IT and ERP systems that we're used to dealing with today on a day-to-day -day basis. Whereas IT and office automation using in the digital world is, is, is quite well developed, quantum computing is moving into a space where you're looking at problems rather than automation. And one of the aspects of that is that in IT today, we can process an awful lot of information. There's certain types of problems that we can't ad address. Those are, are, are difficult problems, they're combinatorial problems, and the, those fall into many different fields. But typically today, where those problems occur, we drop them out into a human resource and the human evaluates the task and then we go back into a, into a compute world. So the, I think the biggest effect of quantum computing is going to be in those spaces where today we're using an expensive organic resource, a human, to undertake a task 
and then transform that into a quantum environment, it will not speed up the typical office automation tasks that we're doing today in a, in a, in a uh, routine basis. It's very important to stress that quantum computers are very, very different to classical computers, and it's not going to be a case if we just switch over. There's the idea of quantum supremacy, which is, is when quantum computers kind of become viable, but that's really the, the base level in terms of it's where we can't simulate quantum in, in terms of a classical computer. So if you take, for example, very deep chemistry, to take a sort of 50 to 60 atom molecule, simulate all the electrical functions within that, how that behaves, is very difficult with a classical computer because you're applying effectively Newtonian physics in, in the way we perceive the world in a binary system in a classical computer to something that obeys the laws of quantum mechanics. So to calculate the Schrodinger equation, which is, is how you figure out the quantum mechanical effects on, on a set system, is very, very difficult in classical computing as you scale that out. Because there's a problem, and you know, we talk about Moore's law being being the reason that computing in a classical sense is slowing down. There's also a concept called Amdahl's law, which effectively states that you have diminishing marginal returns as you parallelize the system. There's certain things that have to be done in serial, and quantum computing is going to start to address those types of problems. And certainly, when you think calculating the Schrodinger equation for very large molecules that's going to really change how we deal with chemistry. And it may in fact be that the first quantum computers are used to perform material science to figure out how to make a better quantum computer. Talk about qubits. In classical computing, we have the bit, which is logical, and we have transistors, which are the physical gate. In quantum computing, qubit is the physical and the logical element because we haven't yet had that watershed moment. In, you know, in the 1950s, we figured we could take a load of transistors, put them on a piece of silicon, and that became a, a chip. We don't have a defined standard for a quantum integrated circuit yet. We're starting to get there. But because of the nature of the quantum computer, it may well be that the first quantum computers are used to perform quantum chemistry that help us build better quantum computers that we then start to accelerate on. So two important points that Craig mentioned there. The first is that actually we can't do this today. It's extremely difficult. We've got some small-scale demonstrations in lab environments of quantum computing, but there's no commercially available systems. And why is that? Because of the complexity and the technical challenges in establishing a sufficiently stable environment within which to create the quantum environment. It's a physics challenge which hasn't yet been uh, overcome. Well, and what, what, is that? what is that challenge? Uh, it's, it's to do with the establishing a thermal stability, and it, we're talking uh, in the order of millikelvins, that you have to take the, the temperature down to, with zero vibration, zero noise, shielded from a magnetic environment as well. It's quite a complex task to set up because a lot of the machinery you need to create a, a, a millikelvin environment creates vibration compressors, pumps, etc., and electrical noise. So there's quite a complex task that needs to be overcome. And the second point there is that Craig was talking about some of the aspects where quantum computing will likely to be addressed in future. And those aren't the typical calculations that we're doing with computers today. You would address them with a different way because it's a different type of compute device. And very much what I'm trying to get across here is that if you've got a task that you want to speed up on today's com current computer, don't wait for a quantum computer to come and do that for you because there's probably a better way. And that's probably as simple as just doing an upgrade faster processors or a newer server, parallelization or kind of application optimization, those would be te techniques you could use to improve performance on today's compute, whereas quantum compute will address a different workspace in the future. So in terms of parallelization and application optimization, those are all things that can be done today. Quantum computing, as Craig said, is, is several years away. Uh, in terms of a commercially exploitable uh, platform. But what it's going to do is, is quite different tasks, as, as Craig said. And here's a classic computer 
uh, problem which illustrates the kind of uh, benefit that quantum computers going to give. And it's called the traveling salesperson problem, and a lot of people will have heard of it. And the, the problem is around how do you route a salesperson around his customers in the most efficient or shortest fashion. And it's quite a simple task to solve. If you've got five customers, there's only 60 possible combinations of going from A to B, or A to C, or A to D, and then to B and A back and back again. However, the problem gets more complex very rapidly. If you had 10 customers, that increases to 1.8 million possible combinations of routes. And if you had 30 customers, then it's, uh, it's a very large number. It's 1.3 with 32 zeros after it, which is, I'm not even going to try to uh, pronounce that uh, right here. Now that kind of task becomes very quickly becomes virtually impossible on a, on a current computer, but it would be a trivial task on a quantum computer and could be resolved in, in a fr small fraction of a second, a few millionths or a billionth of a, of a second. It doesn't solve the problem, though, that most salesmen are going to want to route their visits around the brasserie at lunchtime and the golf course in the evening. Uh, and those tasks will have to be worked into the uh, quantum compute environment as well. And there needs to be a bit of machine learning, perhaps. And there's plenty of other examples across industry where we're doing a similar kind of thing. For example, the ISO containers that you see on the back of lorries or on ships, there's 20 million of those in use at any one time, and probably 200 million different shipping uh, options per container. So the combinatorial task of working out what's the optimum route of shipping those around the world is, is beyond any form of classic com computer today. Production line scheduling is becoming increasingly important with just-in-time uh, delivery uh, optimizations. So how do you ensure that you've got the right products in time to deliver just in time onto the production line to guarantee your, your deliveries becomes increasingly important. That is a combinatorial problem. Establishing the optimum routing for efficiency of robots in a production line is also quite, quite a complex task, and especially when the, the robots interact with each other and working in the same kind of model space. That broad category of optimization problems is, is something where quantum computing sits naturally. You know, you look at, at the type of mathematical problems that, that Martin suggests they're like the traveling salesman problem. As I said previously, the way that quantum computers are structured and how you get that continuous variable and that exponential rise leads itself to these exponential type of functions. So certainly there will be a lot of use cases where you can take optimization issues. Because of the difference in quantum and classical computers, you may have these two working in parallel. A very strong parallel system for neuromorphic computing, FPGA computing, uh, GPGPU computing, for things like AI and machine learning. Figuring out what algorithms, what training sets to use on that actually taking probabilistic computing and quantum computing, trialing different algorithms, figuring out how they work mathematically, and then recommending that back to an AI and ML cluster can help to iterate that a lot more rapidly. Okay, so for organizations, can they go out and buy a quantum computer today? No. And why not? Well, it's, it's very, very complicated stuff. And there's, there's a number of steps we're going to take along the way to get to quantum computing. It's, it's a completely different concept. At the moment, there's still plenty of optimization to be done in classical computing. You know, typically we're at a 10 nanometer process node for current CPUs. There is movement to get that down to 7 and 5 on the roadmap. Below 5, we're going to struggle. Um, and this is where Moore's Law starts to, to tail off. And we've kind of kept that going with, with parallelization and multi-core multi units. But Increasingly, we're going to see more specialized systems, so the emergence of FPGAs and specific ASICs, and directly programming chips in order to, to suit certain applications. And we're going to get certain improvements in CPU technology, but it's starting to slow down, not only because of the, 
the physical limitations. So actually, as we, we start to shrink further, we start to come across that quantum tunneling effect because we're building transistors already that are a thousand times smaller than the width of a human hair. Making them smaller again starts to, to come into all sorts of crazy quantum effects because you get so small and you often have a lot of, a lot of heating and cooling problems, material science issues as well. So we have that bridge in widening out away from the traditional x86 orthodoxy, but we're also bringing in specific types of chips. So neuromorphic computing, FPGA specific chips, and, and also Fujitsu have got um, a product called the Digital Annealer, Martin. Yeah, so the Digital Annealer, it's really it's our bridge towards quantum computing. So this is a, a service which is offered out of Japan, and it's going to be a physical offering uh, in, the, in the UK as well. And what we've done, the scientists in Japan have looked at what a quantum computer would do with quantum tunneling in the future when it would actually be available. And they've analysed the maths of, of what that quantum computer would do, and then implemented that maths in silicon in today's technology. So we've now got a PCIe card with a digital annealer chip on it, which we can start to simulate what a quantum computer would do in 10 years' time. Now, that ASIC that's, uh, that's running the, the digital annealer, it's nothing like as quick as a quantum computer, but we've wrapped the same software environment around it as is being developed by the likes of D-Wave and OneQubit. So we can start to simulate what the look and feel of a, of a quantum computer would be and start to perform some of the calculations as well. So for an organization, what would they use a quantum computer for? Presumably, they're not be running CRM systems from it. Like, what, what are the main advantages? No, you're, you're absolutely right, yes. The CRM systems, ERP systems, uh, any kind of office automation that we're doing in today's classical compute, I think will probably remain closely in those domains as well. This is very much, quantum computer is very much looking at uh, space where the calculation that's required Unless it's it's a looking at a problem, something that you can calculate rather than something that you can automate. I think that's possibly the distinction between the two. But the calculations that are performed today uh, by organic resources, usually expensive organic resources, so either scientists or portfolio managers or some some kind of manager of, of, of an organization who's trying to evaluate how he can best optimize the routing of robots or production lines or, or logistics, etc. The, the digital annealer and the quantum computing will directly address those kind of spaces rather than the office automation spaces that we're familiar with today. Whilst we're trying not to make hard and fast predictions on quantum computing in this episode because they're bound to be wrong, I can categorically say you won't be able to play crisis on it. It's not going to be used for, for general, general purpose computing applications because of the nature of what quantum computers are, are useful for. Optimization problems are going to be the, the big key in terms of a broad field of, of study. Any sort of optimization problem for, for greater efficiency, for optimizing a really broad function, is ideally suited to the use of quantum computers. We're going to see quantum chemistry. And also, we're going to have a, a very interesting field, which is something that's really spurred on a lot of the investment, particularly from governments, which is called quantum cryptography. That is probably the coolest name for something I've ever had. I'm, I'm assuming in, in 10 to 15 years' time, all the people who are, who are leading edge blockchain philosophers and first tech startup VC guys in blockchain, they will all become quantum cryptography specialists. That introduces an interesting point there, because in a post-quantum world, the cryptography that we're using today is virtually useless. It's a trivial task for a quantum computer using Shor's algorithm, and the algorithm has already been written, to uh, do the, the prime factorization uh, challenge, which is the core to the asymmetric key 
uh, infrastructure that we use today. So what does that mean in layman's terms? Anything that you are communicating via your browser today will be readable in the future. And anything you've done today that's recorded will be readable in the future as well. So files that are encrypted today, if some somebody manages to in secret develop a quantum computer and it's really, really powerful, it does does everything it's supposed to, could that person then take some encrypted files and just decrypt them without anyone realizing? Yes. Yes. If they're if they're oh. encrypted via asymmetric key, then yes. There's a really big reason why there's a lot of military and government funding going into this, and this is the reason. So uh, in the US, they're evaluating a number of different algorithms and a number of different techniques that they want to put forward and test for a post-quantum world. And in a year or two's time, I think we might have a, a slightly different uh, cryptographic environment. So what you're saying there is that they're already developing the next levels of cryptography, but using quantum computing? Well, they're developing the next generation of cryptography to accommodate the advances in quantum computing, to render those next steps in cryptography to be proof against quantum computing. Everything we've done in IT for all of our industries has been kind of evolution of what came for earlier. This is completely different. It's a revolution. It's, it's not an evolution of anything. I, I guess what you're saying is like, whatever we have learned, whatever we've developed and built in the last 10, 30, 40 years is basically... 100. 100 years is basically useless because it doesn't work in the world of quantum computing. Everything we've built so far is based on the Newtonian model of physics. Everything is underlined by that because it's based on what we perceive, what we see, because it's, it's been developed before we've really understood the quantum mechanical side of things. Now we understand quantum mechanics, we've now got to rebuild the fundamental model of how we deal with everything in order to take advantage of it. So we talked about, I guess, like some of the stuff that is being looked at at the moment, algorithms that are being developed, the digital Nina that you talked about. But when can I go online and buy a truly quantum computer? The short answer is we don't know. Uh, longer answer is there's a lot of steps to be taken to make that a reality. It's not going to be all that soon. If you're a SoftCat and, and Fujitsu customer and you're looking at saying, well, maybe we hold off on our hardware refresh for a year or two because we're not going to be using conventional Xeon-powered servers in, in two years, we're going to be using quantum computers. And this is not a sales pitch, but please come and buy some more servers from us because we're not going to be able to sell you a quantum computer anytime soon, as much as we would love to. And it won't address the workload you're doing on a classic computer anyway. Absolutely, yeah. I think the, the field's going to be very similar to what we saw in classical computing. The kind of canary in the coal mine is going to be the government and military application of these computers. Once we start to see universities, governments, research institutions all coming together and we're starting to see some really interesting papers come out. But once we, we get these things breaking ground and papers coming out saying we've done it, you're then going to have the same type of lag that we saw, perhaps not to the the same extent we saw with classical computing because of the limitations of when we discover classical computing in a, in a real commercialized aspect from the Second World War and the Cold War. But there's definitely going to be that lag between the research and government applications and cracking that, and then the shift wherein you know, IBM, Fujitsu, Google, Microsoft, Amazon will be able to then sell you space on a quantum computer out of their cloud platforms. So Craig, to summarize? So in summary, quantum computing is completely different to what we know today in classical computing because it uses quantum physics rather than the traditional Newtonian physics that we've been tied to ever since the birth of computers even going all the way back to Charles Babbage. It's not here yet 
but it's incredibly exciting as a field. It's absolutely something that there's a huge amount of weight being put behind from, from research institutions, from organisations and from governments. And when it does arrive, it's going to fundamentally change how we deal with computational problems, not in terms of getting email to people faster or, or building better CRM systems, but solving problems in the mathematical, chemical, physical space that we simply haven't been able to even attempt beforehand. So I think it's going to be a fascinating leap in terms of how computing is done. It's going to be a paradigm shift in the way we deal with the world fundamentally, not just in the IT space. In terms of the multiplier effect that quantum computing is going to have further out on every industry, and that's going to lead to some very interesting effects that we don't really know yet because there's so many leaps to be done before we get to general purpose, large-scale commercial quantum computing. But the, the distance in between and the research that's already being done is going to have some fascinating impacts on, on everybody's lives. Craig and Martin, thank you so much for your time. It's been genuinely interesting talking to you both and learning about quantum computing and quantum mechanics. Didn't really think I was going to be learning about that today. Listeners, if there's anything in the show that has piqued your interest or if you'd like to speak to someone at Softcat about anything that we talked about in this episode, do make sure you check out the show notes and we're going to put some of the stuff there as well. Do also make sure you click subscribe wherever you get your podcast and we'll deliver the next episode to your device as soon as it lands. So thank you for listening to Explain It from Softcat.